Self-Decode is the world's first precision health platform that frees you from the generic solutions of traditional healthcare and puts control back in your hands. Using science-backed research and AI-driven algorithms, Self-Decode gives you personalized diet, supplement, and lifestyle suggestions based on your body's blueprint, your DNA. Get started for free with an existing DNA file or order a DNA kit at 25% off with the code GENIUS. Start optimizing your health today at selfdecode.com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Greg Marchand. He's an award-winning board-certified obstetrician based in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, He's the director of the Marchand Institute for Minimally Invasive Surgery. And uh, he actually has, uh, I believe, a Guinness Book of World Records uh, award uh, because of uh, minimally invasive surgery. So... Dr. Greg, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, tell me a bit about your your practice and why the move towards uh, minimally invasive surgery. Why did you fixate on that? Um, well, it's it's something I've always been interested in since I was a medical student. Uh, I think like uh, many medical students, when they were deciding what type of physician they wanted to be, uh, what really kind of struck me was that I, I really like surgery, but I really didn't like all the complications that came along with it. Uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, when you're making those large incisions and a patient has to stay in the hospital and recover from a surgery, all the complications that can ensue and end up, and really how painful it is for those patients to recover from large open surgeries. Uh, that was something that really bothered me. Um, and that's when uh, a gynecologist that I was studying under 
showed me minimally invasive surgery. And there's really this whole set of uh, procedures. Most of them are, are specific to gynecology, but they're used a lot in other specialties too, where you can do surgery through tiny holes and uh, get great outcomes and have patients that recover just so much quicker. So that's, uh, uh, you know, the thrill of doing all that surgery and not having patients in pain, not having patients, you know, really sick that you have to take care of. It mm. was really my motivation for first getting into this. How come everybody doesn't do it? What's so difficult about it? It's not so much extremely difficult, but but uh, as I said, the majority of the call for that is going to be in gynecology. It is used in other specialties, uh, but not quite as much as we use it in gynecology. Uh, you know, for example, uh, a lot of general surgeons, they can use it to take out appendixes and, and gallbladders and, and things like that. But really, when you get to gynecologic surgery, that's an area that with the exception of the cesarean section, you know, when you've got to get the baby out in one piece, with the exception of that, Almost all the surgeries we do on the ovaries, the uterus, and the fallopian tubes, uh, you can all, they can, they're all really amenable to minimally invasive means. Uh, now, that's not to say that every surgery can be done through minimally invasive means. There's, there's certain, certain surgeries that just can't. I mentioned a C-section. You don't want to chop up a live baby. You want to bring that out one piece through a big incision. But also, you want to be careful about anything that might be a cancer, uh, because you don't want to be breaking up a cancer and possibly sending little bits of it every direction and possibly spreading that cancer. So there are some limitations. That's why not every surgery can be a, a minimally invasive surgery. But what areas of surgery would, would benefit a lot from doing this, but yet they haven't done it very much? Well, you know, the area specifically uh, that I look at is, is hysterectomy. I've been a big part of promoting more minimally invasive hysterectomies over the last 10 years. I apologize, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we've actually gone from, you know, over the last 10 years, uh, whereas only a small number of hysterectomies were done through, uh, through tiny holes or done through tiny incisions, you know, where now a majority of them are. Uh, that, like I said, there are still some cases where, where some uteruses can't be taken out through tiny holes where they're either just too big or they, they have suspicion of cancer. But now more than half of hysterectomies are done through minimally invasive means. Uh, so uh, you're going to see a lot fewer women that have that kind of bikini cut on them from having it done open as opposed to laparoscopic. Okay. And then why is minimally invasive surgery less invasive? What, what makes it less invasive and what happens when you do a normal versus a you know, an MIS surgery, what's different about it? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and it, it's really a counterintuitive answer. Uh, the answer is that, you know, from years of performing surgery, the recovery of the surgery, uh, kind of the how much you feel like you've been hit by a train when you wake up from surgery, that really comes from how large of an incision you make in the fascia, which is, you know, the main covering of the body under your skin. Uh, when you're cutting that fascia layer and sewing it back together, that's really what gives somebody that feeling of, oh my God, I just had a very major surgery. You know, I'm so sick. I, you know, your body doesn't feel right. And if you can get away from using that incision and do the surgery through tiny holes, like little pinpricks or even small one centimeter holes, that that feeling will go away and they'll recover so much quicker. And that's really counterintuitive because I think, uh, you know, if you, if you don't know the data, the first thing you're going to think of is what's going to matter most is what you're doing inside the abdomen. You know, taking out a small tumor or a big tumor, that should make a difference. Or you might think that the time the surgery takes should make a difference. But really the biggest factor in recovery and how much pain the patient has afterwards is how big of an incision you make in the fascia. So if you cut that down, you just do a world of good for the patient. Why is that? What what happens with a larger incision? Is it just, um, you know, again, you said more of the fashion is cut and disturbed. So does it just create 
you know, a, a much higher inflammatory response, which drains the body's resources. I think you're getting a little above my pay grade here, sir. I'm, I'm just a surgeon. I, I know what the data is on how long they stay in the hospital and what their pain scores are when they uh, come mm. out of surgery and such. Uh, but I, I don't know exactly. And it's very interesting, you know, why, for example, if you used eight one centimeter holes, would that be less than one eight centimeter hole in the fascia? Fortunately, I think maybe some people smarter than me know the answer to that. Uh, you're certainly right. It probably has a lot to do with the inflammation reaction. Maybe a pathologist could tell us a little more of the ins and outs of why the large incision, uh, you know, has the body and the brain believing it's been through, uh, you know, a very, very serious ordeal. Whereas the tiny incisions, uh, you know, they can usually just wake up and go home. Well, I guess on a gallbladder, there's probably maybe no pain receptors or not as many as they would be on you know, the skin and the, the tissue leading through the skin. So maybe more of those are cut, more nerves are there. They're just more, you know, I mean, the invasiveness, it sounds like happens at the skin level and right below it. Yeah, yeah. Largely, it's the incision and the fascia that, that determines how invasive the patient is. And, and, you know, if you're if you're making an incision more than a few centimeters in the fascia, that's a patient that should be watched overnight and a patient you'd expect to have more pain and, uh, uh, and a slower recovery. Um, most gallbladders can be done laparoscopically. Most, most gallbladders, uh, you know, after they're placed in a bag can come out of a pretty small incision. They can be squished down out of a two centimeter incision. Uh, all the general surgeons I know do the vast majority of their gallbladders, uh, through tiny holes. Of course, there's going to be some you can't do like that. You'd have to make a large up and down incision. And that's going to be those cases where there's so much scar tissue, uh, that really it can't be done using the robot or, or the laparoscopic means. You've got to get your hands in there to do it. Yeah, when, when visually you go in to check on the patient, how different does their healing incision look if it's minimally invasive versus not? I mean, like at the edges of the wound, does it look different or is it just smaller and there's really no difference visually? Uh, just smaller, uh, you know, immediately after a surgery, you're, regardless of how the surgery went or what we're talking about, we're not going to see any signs of infection that quickly. Um, but it's more going to be if the patient's telling you for the pain they're feeling and the amount of movement the patient can do. I'm very proud to say that uh, in addition to making the incisions fewer and smaller, a lot of people have been working on uh, a, a protocol or a set of protocols in medicine called Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Uh, or ARIS, and uh, I've been involved with many hospitals that have been using these protocols, uh, and, and it's amazing when using this in conjunction with smaller incisions, uh, how you can really make a patient recover much more quickly, and I can tell you there's a lot of procedures uh, that you would have been staying in the hospital for one or multiple nights for, and now most of these procedures you can go home the same day. So I don't think you'd see anything specific uh, to the wounds other than seeing smaller wounds, uh, but the patient's pain scores, the patient's ability to move, the patient's ability to eat or be hungry to eat, uh, to not be nauseated, these are all going to be much better with minimally invasive surgery. No, that's great. Um, there was mention in your bio of a Guinness Book of World Records Award. What, what was that about? Several years back when uh, we were a lot further back on the curve of getting uh, minimally invasive surgery accepted for hysterectomies, me and another surgeon uh, named Richard Demir decided that a very good way to bring attention to this would be to set a Guinness World Record. Um, and it was a, a very nice patient who had come over from Mexico. Unfortunately, she was unable to get the care that she needed in Mexico for her fibroids. Fibroids are uh, 
non-cancerous tumors of the uterus uh, that, that can grow to quite large sizes. Uh, and she hadn't gotten care for it for many, many years. Uh, and actually the uterus was as large, was actually seven pounds in total size. Uh, another important uh, factor about this patient was she had some pretty significant heart disease. Uh, so this is one of those patients where I wasn't very sure that if we had to cut the patient open, meaning if we had to do one of those very large up and down midline incisions, I wasn't sure her body would be able to recover from it. But luckily, we were able to do this incision through tiny holes. Uh, it took quite a long time, and it, uh, it, it used devices called morselators, which kind of, uh, just like they sound like, they eat up the tissue into tiny morsels to remove it. And we were able to remove all seven pounds uh, of that uterine tissue for this woman in about an eight-hour surgery. And uh, we were both very impressed that this was able to be done. We were thrilled that this woman not only recovered without complications, but was able to leave the hospital the day after the surgery. So some of my office staff, when they discussed it with us, uh, said they thought Guinness would be interested in this. Uh, so they uh, went ahead and filled out the application. Uh, Guinness verified all the results from the pathology lab that looked at the uterus. And uh, yeah, we were very proud that they uh, awarded us a Guinness World Record for removing the largest uterus ever laparoscopically. So what makes it, um, I would think it would be difficult if you only go in through a tiny hole. Like, how do you make movements with the scalpel? You have like micro movements with a, a tiny little blade that's on the end of the, the object you insert? Or like, so how do you do the surgery and the cutting? And then when you're pulling stuff out, how do you make sure stuff doesn't tear or push stuff out of the way or rip the hole open when it comes out? Oh, you've got a lot of questions here. There's a lot of different techniques to do just what you said. Uh, exactly as you said, you never want to have a stick with a knife on it uh, and swinging that around in the abdomen. That's a very, uh, uh, that would take a lot of skill to use that uh, effectively. Uh, so we use mostly other techniques, instruments that are going to be more similar to clamps that burn in between the clamps and cut in between the clamps, uh, more similar to scissors. Now, the morselator is a device that uh, uses a uh, spinning blade. So you've got a circular-shaped tube with blades at the end. Uh, so you think of it kind of like a hose that eats up everything in front of it. Uh, so that device can be used to take out larger objects. Another trick that can be used is in-bag morselation, meaning instead of putting the tube with the blades into the abdomen to eat things up, you could put what you want to get out of the abdomen in a bag and just bring the mouth of the bag out of one of those incisions. And then carefully, uh, with a, through a, a one and a half or a two centimeter incision, you'll be able to access that tissue as long as, as long as you pull all the edges of the bag to keep them taut. It'll give you kind of a little window to that tissue where you can cut it out piece by piece until you've got it all out. Um, other techniques uh, in gynecology very often use bringing objects out of the woman's body through the vagina. Just from a surgical perspective, the vagina is a very, very convenient place to work. Uh, you know, and uh, if you can access the vagina correctly from inside the woman's body, you, you can get very large objects out because after all, you know, vaginas are made to get babies out. Uh, so it's, it's a great surgical technique in those surgeries where it's feasible. Self-decode is taking the guesswork out of wellness. By analyzing your genes, lab tests, and lifestyle data, Self-Decode provides the most holistic and personalized plan for optimal health. They're giving our listeners 25% off new DNA kits with the code GENIUS, where you can get started free if you have an existing DNA file. Visit selfdecode.com to learn more. I don't know. Is there any, like, what, what would be the future of minimally invasive surgery, that it would just be used everywhere humanly possible, or, you know, where does 
did have to go next? Do the techniques need to be improved further or like how would, how would you see it advancing? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> you're exactly on this. I'm surprised you're not in this industry. Um, so as you said, first of all, fewer incisions. We're going to go to as few incisions as possible. And possibly, uh, in many cases, we'll be able to use natural orifices of the body. Meaning, you know, instead of starting through an incision uh, in the abdomen, start through an incision that's coming in through someone's rectum or coming in through someone's vagina. Uh, now, that's not to say these are without risks, but that's one way to avoid any scars at all. Um, and then what you're putting inside the patient's abdomen to do the uh, surgery, that technology is changing quickly right now. As you may be aware, a lot of people are using robots to perform minimally invasive surgery. Uh, so basically, the uh, holes are made, the ports are put in, and then the robot comes in and operates through those tiny holes. Uh, the obvious uh, next step of this is going to be that a robot that's very small comes in through, uh, through possibly just one hole, and then once it's inside the patient, can spread out in all directions to give you a full field of motion. Of course, the technologies will also advance to be better at showing things on a more microscopic level. Right now, I think most surgeons are much more comfortable breaking apart adhesions if they can touch them with their own hands. Uh, I think in the very near future, we're going to see much better microscopic envisionment inside laparoscopy, where a lot of surgeons who are trained in this are going to be comfortable taking apart even very, very small incisions, I'm sorry, very, very small adhesions uh, using the tools of a robot or, a, or laparoscopic instruments, because they're going to get such a great view of what they're doing and the instruments are just going to be so fine in their movements. What do you see post-op if it's a robotic surgery versus a human, you know, doing the minimally invasive surgery? Like how much of a difference is there? Well, the, the robot is, is an excellent tool because it gives you uh, several advantages you don't have if you're just doing a what we call a straight stick laparoscopy. Even the most uh, advanced straight stick laparoscopy instruments don't have the number of wrists or the range of motion uh, that the robot is going to. You can really move in 360 degrees. Uh, plus, the robot is going to be uh, effortless movement. At least right now, there's no feedback to the robot, meaning no haptic feedback, meaning you can't feel what you're touching with the instruments. So that is one disadvantage. And when you're, hold, when you're doing regular straight stick laparoscopy, where you've got literally one end of an instrument in your hand, the other end inside the patient's abdomen through a small hole, you certainly can touch and feel the tissues that you're that you're working on, that you're pushing and pulling against. Another disadvantage of the robot is, although we just talked about a future where maybe the robot goes in through a very small single hole or, or a natural orifice hole and then spreads out uh, once it's inside the abdomen, uh, well, unfortunately, we're not at that point yet. So to the current versions of the robot are going to require quite a few little holes for you to get all the, uh, all the instruments that you need to perform most surgeries. And for that reason, a lot of people prefer straight stick or conventional laparoscopy because it's more, more uh, tailored to putting the ports where you want to put them and perhaps putting fewer ports. Whereas the robot, it'd be very difficult if you didn't have at least uh, the, the three or four standard robot ports. Do robots seem to do a better job at MIS or human hands still do? Or just, again, just depends on the situation. There's no comparison. Yeah, so it's, it, it, I mean, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page. It's not telling a robot, get this, uh, you know, get this gallbladder out. Um, it's sitting at a, a, a console uh, where you're using uh, two instruments that are very similar to joysticks, 
uh, and controlling the robot while looking at a screen. And that kind of gives you the, uh, the bird's eye view of being right there in the abdomen, uh, whereas opposed to straight stick laparoscopy or conventional laparoscopy, um, you've got an instrument uh, that's a, you know, a grabber that you've got one hand on, and then you're looking up at a screen, uh, where, where, which is showing you an image through a telescope that you're holding through another port. So it's not so much that a robot's doing the surgery for you, it's that you're controlling it from a console much more like a video game, uh, whereas, uh, uh, you know, straight stick laparoscopy is more like, well, you're literally holding a stick, we have the other end of which is in the patient. Are there any, um, I don't know, are there any surgeries that are being considered right now to change over from, you know, traditional to minimally invasive? Any candidates? And, and is there like a, is there a whole procedure and vetting process by which a surgery converts from one style to another? No, there's no official process. Um, it largely is based on surgeon comfort. Uh, surgeons that will become comfortable with it will then have very good results, and they will continue teaching other surgeons. Um, and of course, uh, medicine in the United States is based largely on residency. Uh, so as you're undergoing your residency to train to be the type of surgeon you want to be, uh, you're going to learn your techniques from uh, those that are teaching you what they've learned. Um, so there is certainly a curve as this goes on. And then another big part of this, uh, apart from just uh, surgeons doing what they were quote unquote trained to do, is going to be recommendations from major groups. Uh, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, ha- makes recommendations such as this. Every medical specialty has their own uh, in their own board, uh, which basically puts out guidelines and, uh, and and practice bulletins to say what is feasible and, and what is being done. Um, it's very rare for these boards or uh, or colleges to to make very strict statements. Uh, they wouldn't say something like "you should never do a gallbladder through a large incision," uh, but they uh, they do make statements that uh, under appropriate circumstances, it's reasonable to attempt this laparoscopically. Uh, If you're asking where the cutting edge is right now, I think most people would agree that cutting edge for laparoscopic and minimally invasive surgery uh, is probably in the oncology field. There's a lot of data right now looking at whether we're doing more harm or more good uh, by by working on these cancer patients uh, using laparoscopic or uh, minimally invasive techniques uh, because you're balancing the risk of spreading a cancer versus the quicker recovery for the patient. Yeah, that makes sense. So for minimally invasive surgeries, um, will it typically be one hole? Or because if it gets small enough, you need multiple holes to really to triangulate around an area that you need to do surgery on. But yet they're all smaller holes and it still has the effect of faster healing and less pain, et cetera. Uh, right. So it, it could be done either way. Also uh, depends on what you're defining as whole. So in the, uh, in the realm of hysterectomy, it is possible to do a hysterectomy only through the vagina. So uh, in that case, you won't really have any visualization of what's going on in the abdominal cavity. So that's that's not a favorite way of mine to do the procedure. Um, there are certain circumstances where I will do a, a, a total vaginal hysterectomy with no incisions other than in the vagina. Um, but that's going to be a more rare case because I, I want to be able to visualize what's going on in the abdomen and see the blood supply that I'm a- actively operating on. But it certainly is going to depend on the surgery and the skill of the, of the surgeon. Um, and of course, we started off talking, the number of incisions generally is less important than the size of incisions. 
if you need to make a large incision, uh, you know, to, to perform a surgery, you know, three centimeters, you may be better off with three or even four one centimeter incisions if you can do the surgery that way, uh, you know, to save the patient some of that recovery from the larger laparotomy or larger incision. Um, do you tend to have less nerve damage, you know, because you're doing much smaller incisions? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in, in laparoscopy, oh, you know, when, when you're coming in, you know, because it's, it's essentially a pinpoint entry through the fascia that's then stretched to about a centimeter, uh, nerve injuries are pretty rare. It is kind of rare. It's actually more common to have nerve injuries uh, because of the uh, positions that you have to have the patients in during the surgery. Uh, you know, for example, you usually have to have the legs up in the air if you're going to be operating from the abdominal approach while manipulating vaginally. Uh, it's actually more common to get injuries from uh, from the position that the legs are held in than it is to actually have a one of your trocars or instruments actually hit a nerve on entry. Okay. Are there are there parts of the body where it can tolerate a large incision with minimal problem? Like, what if um, I don't know you're going to do a surgery on my gallbladder for some reason and you cut like a large incision like I don't know, on my leg, and it was distal, but the large incision there, let's say, would be more well tolerated than right near the site of where the surgery needs to happen. Is there any kind of surgery that happens like that, where for some reason, again, it works better as long as the cut is like far away? I, I'm i not sure how you'd get your gallbladder out of your leg. And I think the process of doing that would be a little dangerous. But uh, what you're saying is absolutely true. Uh, you know, for example, that the gallbladder, if your gallbladder needed to be removed, if we cut a hole in your fascia right above the gallbladder, uh, you know, that would be quite a bit of uh, recovery. Um, whereas I, I can tell you in a female patient, if you could remove the gallbladder, now there would be an issue about the vagina not being sterile. Uh, so, so that could be an issue. Uh, but I can tell you making an incision at the top of the vagina, if the woman didn't have a uterus or directly on the uh, part of the vagina under the uterus called the posterior cul-de-sac, if you were to pull the vagina, uh, pull, I'm sorry, pull the, uh, the gallbladder out of that part of the vagina, recovery would be very quick for that woman. Vaginal incisions heal very, very quickly uh, with very little recovery. I'm not, I'm not a general surgeon, so I can't tell you uh, if you could uh, bring a gallbladder out through a rectum, how quickly the whole incision in the rectum would heal if you wanted to put it inside the rectum. Uh, obviously, there'd be a lot of danger if, you're, if your bowels leak. That's a very serious thing that could lead to colostomy. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine that it's something anybody would routinely do, uh, but it's a very interesting question you, you pose there. And I, I think you probably would heal more quickly and have less recovery in that situation. Yeah, maybe my example is crazy, you know, leg versus gallbladder, but I just made something up. But, you know, it's just it's just an idea that came to me. And I guess it also could lead to the joke of uh, pulling someone's head out of their ass, too. <laughs> I know neurosurgeons are doing quite a bit with surgery through the nose as opposed to drilling through the skull. Yeah, that comes to mind as a similar kind of scenario. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, I don't know, what's the, what's the future for you? Just continuing to work on this and looking for more techniques to make it be better? Or, um, you know, what's your goal over the next few years? That's definitely one of my goals. I, I want to be on the cutting edge. So I want to continue to get the best training that I can. When new techniques come out, I want to go to all the conferences I can to learn about them and see which ones are going to be the best for my patient. Um, that's why I, uh, I started this institute. 
where we train fellows. Uh, we're accredited uh, by the Society of Laparoendoscopic Surgeons, and we offer a two-year program uh, to train fellows directly uh, in uh, minimally invasive surgery. Uh, and we take fellows that have graduated from OBGYN residencies or general surgery residencies. Uh, so teaching is a, is a big part of what I do. Uh, also at the Institute, I don't, I don't know how close you are to Mesa, Arizona, but if you want to come by, we have a full laboratory of surgical simulators uh, if you want to see what some of this surgery is like and want to try your hand at it on a computer, uh, you know, That's don't cool. worry, no one will die if you, uh, if you make a mistake, but, but we do have the simulators that simulate both laparoscopy through straight stick and uh, robotic surgery. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I, I may uh, take you up on that. I'm in uh, Austin, Texas, but that'd be cool to pop by for a visit and, uh, and do that. Yeah, because I'm sure the act of doing it and seeing it, even in simulation, is radically different from just talking about it. And I'm sure, you know, other ideas would come and things to, to improve. So I don't know if you, if you want following the audio portion, I don't mind bringing the computer over to show you the simulators and stuff. If you want to see that. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Um, I don't know if you want or have time or, you know, for listeners to contact you, but uh, just in general, how do people, if, if someone has an upcoming surgery, I guess they should just talk to their doctor and their surgeon and say, Hey, you know, any chance of doing this minimally invasively? Uh, any questions that, that someone should ask if they're going to have a surgery that would maybe make it go better for them? Oh, you nailed it. Can this surgery be done through minimally invasive means? And are there other surgeons that are doing it through minimally invasive means? Absolutely. Uh, and I would, I would especially say to ask this question, especially if it's a doctor you've had for years, uh, you know, because if they're many, many years divorced from their training, uh, they may not be up on the latest techniques, which doesn't make them at all a bad doctor. Uh, but for this one particular surgery, you should really seek out the best care you can. Uh, so I would definitely ask if it can be done through minimally tech, minimally invasive techniques and, uh, and who's doing, who's doing it. And I think it never hurts to get a second opinion about this. Is there a category, like a designation, like, you know, John Smith, comma, MIS certified, meaning, you know, minimally invasive surgery certified or something? There is starting to be. In gynecology, we now have a focused practice certificate, meaning, uh, you know, if you're a board certified OBGYN, that's one recognition you can get from the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. But they now do have a certificate for a focused practice in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Uh, but they only started offering that last year. Uh, so I know a lot of people that are very good at minimally invasive surgery actually don't have it yet. Although you can ask about what fellowships a surgeon's done, I'm not really aware of any other sort of board certifications or board certificates uh, that other specialties can get to show that they're skilled at minimally invasive surgery. Uh, you may just have to ask, have you done a fellowship in this? You know, have you actually done some designated training on how to do minimally invasive surgery? Or is it just something you picked up? Okay, well, very good. Well, you know, Dr. Marchand, it's been great to speak to you, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Here's some parting words from Self Decode's founder, Joe. In a world of uncertainty, we've got you. Before taking control of my health, I had almost given up hope of the life I dreamed of. Then I realized the answers I needed were inside my DNA all along. Let us help you find yours. Start free with an existing DNA file or use code GENIUS to save 25% on a kit. A healthier life is waiting for you at selfdecode.com. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.